It is wonderful to be back with you guys. I, I am wondering about uh, one aspect of the Lord's control. Uh, back in January, last time we came, there had been a fire of a home uh, just up the street that we noticed as we drove in. And yesterday, uh, as we drove in, there was a florist, so maybe we shouldn't come back to Cowan. I'm not sure what exactly is going on with that. It, it's not us. It's already done by the time that we get here. I promise that. Um, but I'm thankful for your care for your community and all those different pieces. And uh, also, I love, I love your pastor. I'm so, we, we miss him uh, at our church. And if you, if you were busy during Sunday school, then you missed out. If you uh, just didn't come to Sunday school, you know, you make your own choices. That's on you. But he's my favorite Old Testament teacher. Uh, he reads a passage and he sees with colors that I'm like, I didn't even know that that was there. And so I was blessed to hear Second uh, Kings chapter 2 this morning. I encourage you to encourage him. Um, we, we love Brian and Melissa. It's just a blessing to be here. Uh, the gift is ours to be able to come alongside. Let's pray and then we'll dive into our time this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, it is perfect. It's, it's flawless. It is uh, life and bread and water to us uh, by your spirit as it points us to Jesus. I pray that you would help me as I seek to speak your word uh, to your people. Um, open our eyes, open my eyes, that we would see this, these truths. Uh, thank you for the truth of this passage that, that you uh, justify sinners like us um, by faith. Amen. I remember one time our family went to Disney World uh, down in Florida uh, before you get to the park to buy tickets, you also have to pay a parking fee. That's kind of a rant that I want to take. If I'm already paying a fortune, why can't you just tack on another dollar or two? Uh, but no, you get to pay parking ahead of time. That's, that's fine. My dad was driving up to the parking booth to pay the fee, and I was really excited to be there. I was actually sitting in the passenger seat. So I started waving my hands wildly and shouting Disney in this high-pitched, shrieking type of voice. Uh, really, really loud over and over again. Dad was, was probably shaking his head. I remember my older sister, Jennifer, uh, was laughing. My mom's covering her face a little bit, uh, probably embarrassed because I was 20 years old uh, at the time. True story. Uh, anyway, I continued shouting as my dad rolled down his window to pay the parking fee, and the worker looked at me, and he nodded his head, Kind of like this, and, and he said, I like it. And then he, he led us into the parking lot for free. And uh, as I think about that, what, what he did there, right, he counted my enthusiasm uh, as payment for parking. You see? Uh, as, at our church, uh, Risen King Church in Hurricane, a couple hours away, we are working through the book of Genesis together on a weekly basis. And just absolutely been loving it. What I... I say that, you know, what's your favorite book, kind of wherever, whatever we happen to be studying at the time. And this, our time in Genesis has just been really, really rich. Uh, we're, my fellow pastor Keith, who was here last uh, April, May, something like that, um, he's preaching Genesis chapter 17 today. And a few weeks ago, we were in Genesis chapter 15, the text that was read for you this morning. I want to focus on one uh, verse that I wanted to, that I zoomed in for our people. I want to zoom in for that. Zoom in on that one verse for you. It's Genesis 15, 6. Uh, you, you can turn there and see it, and then uh, we're going to end up in another passage as well. But I do always, um, I like the tangible aspect you have in your Bible and having it open so that you're not just kind of like, what does the preacher have to say? Uh, it doesn't matter. It matters what God's Word says, uh, and we're only faithful and, and helpful if it's this is what God's Word says. So I want you to, to see this for yourself, especially the truths today 
the really single truth that is very counterintuitive, um, very unlikely, really feels very impossible. Uh, but yet here it is in black and white for us. Genesis 15, verse 6, right in the middle of God's work for Abram, or Abraham as he will be called, says this, talking about Abram, says, and he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. So Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it, his believing, to Abram for or as righteousness. We're going to see Paul use this verse. He actually, he quotes it twice in different passages. James quotes it once. Um, so this is an important verse, right? The, the New Testament is built on the foundation of the Old Testament, but there's something key about this one verse that just continues to be repeated to draw out a number of different lessons. Paul uses this verse to emphasize one of the most important gospel truths found in the entire Bible. Far better news than saving a few dollars on parking at an amusement park is the gospel truth that God counts faith as righteousness. God counts faith as righteousness. And then my summary for the sermon, I think, that you would see in your bulletin is this. uh, God justifies sinners who believe in his promises. I mean, there it is. If you can only listen to the first five minutes of a sermon and then you tune out, uh, I understand. Um, That's the thing that I want you to see. I I see it in Scripture, throughout Scripture, and I wanted to explain it to you. But that's the truth, that God justifies sinners who believe in his promises. We're going to see that in the life of Abram. We'll see that to ourselves as well. What we often don't think about with Abram, we can tend to... um, I don't know, would the term be whitewash? Uh, We would tend to think about Bible characters as if they were somehow different and always better than us. Uh, As if the things that apply to us as sinners didn't apply to them. And Scripture takes pains to say that's not the case. Uh, We know from Genesis 3 that Abram is a sinner before he's even alive, because that's when Adam sinned. And the Bible's clear that that sin and that guilt of Adam's sin fell on all of his descendants, like like a genetic deformity, right? But it's moral, right? It affected all of his descendants. It affected Abram. It affects me. It affects you. We are all born sinners. Abram is no exception to that. Earlier in this story, right after we meet Abram, God calls him to leave the land. And he goes, we're like, ah, Abram, right? Three cheers for for Abram. And the next thing that he does is he lies about his wife being a sister, lets her be taken into the harem of King Pharaoh. And in the meantime, you're like, oh, maybe he was troubled. He got rich off of it. He's like, he's like well, oh, I love your sister so much. Here's cattle. And he's like, okay, I'll take your cattle. Here's, here's servants. Okay, I'll take your servants. Here's a bunch of money. He's like, okay, I'll take that money. It's like, Abram, you're a terrible husband, right? You are not a good guy. And then, you know, and then he does right, and then he does wrong. And then he does right, and then he does wrong. It's all of the Bible characters that do this. Uh, Abram is a sinner. Uh, really, the text in another place points out the fact and we might miss this, Abram, at the time of God calling him, was an idol worshiper like everybody else. At 70 years old, or or maybe a few decades before that, when God first called Abram, right, Abram was bending the knee to, who was it? Was it Baal? Uh, Was it the gods, some other god from Babylon, from Ur of the Chaldeans, right? The whole world is given to idolatry. Abram's right in the middle of that. Abram was an unrighteous sinner. And then God graciously spoke a promise to Abram. 
Starting in verse 12, or chapter 12, he gives those promises. And then when it comes back into verse chapter 15, excuse me, I'm, I'm summarizing like a month worth of sermons as I go through this. Hopefully these are not unfamiliar stories to you. Uh, Abram come, God comes back to Abram, Genesis chapter 15. We heard uh, the brother read this for us. The word of the Lord came to Abram, verse 4. This man, this servant in your household, he will not be your heir. He's not going to inherit all of these riches that I have blessed you with, even though some of them you got in Egypt, and we're not going to talk about that. He will not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. It is very, uh, really only graphic, right? That which comes out of your body, right? Not someone that you will adopt, not someone that you will find, not a servant in your name. Your seed, your offspring, your son, he will be your heir. And Abram's like, oh, okay. Uh, and the Lord said this. It's amazing. We were outside. We didn't get, it was a little bit too chilly, but at the farm and around your beautiful town, it's, it's easier to see stars than with the light pollution that we have uh, more in Hurricane and everything from Charleston and Huntington and all those different types of things. But you go out and you look at the stars. And can you imagine what the sky would have looked like in the desert for Abram to stand outside his tent hearing from God? Have you seen the stars when you can actually see the Milky Way? You can see that it looks like a cloud, but it's the stars. Only a few times have I been able to see that, but it's, it's amazing. There's just so many more than we could ever imagine. The Lord says, look toward heaven, number the stars, if you're able to number them. And the Lord said to Abram, that's how many offspring you'll have. So shall your offspring be. It's a very clear and simple promise, isn't it, that the Lord makes to Abram? There's, there's not, I wonder what he means. You don't have any children now, but you're going to have a son. And through your son, you will have grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren until you have so many people in your family, you can't even count them. Now, uh, kids, have, have you guys learned to count? Do you know how to count? Yeah. Do you know how to count? What's the first thing you do whenever you're counting? Where do you start? One. Okay, so if you're trying to count all the stars, you're going to start with what? You're going to pick one and be like, one star. Okay, so if there's no stars in the sky, then you, you can't start counting. And if, and if you're going to count all of your descendants, you've got to have one. And how many children does Abram, Abram have at this point? He has zero, right? So it would be a whole lot easier to count Abram's offspring than the stars because he has no offspring. But God makes that promise. I'm going to give you a numberless amount of children and offspring. The promise that God makes to Abrams is clear, and it's huge, and it really seems utterly impossible, doesn't it? He's, he's what? He's, he's closing in on 90 years old at this point, and never had any children, right? The, the barrenness of his wife and the fact they would have no children, it was a bygone conclusion. Oldest person here? Nobody wants to admit? That's all right. How, uh, I, no, I can't, I'll just ask the next to you, I'm not going to do this. How old are you, sir? 90? 90. Okay, is this, is, are we going to hear next week that this dear sister is expecting a baby? Is that going to happen? <laughs> it's not going to happen, right? <laughs> and she's like, I hope it doesn't happen, may the Lord, may the Lord not fulfill those promises to us, right? We, but that's like that impossibility. Clear promise, huge promise, impossible promise. How does Abram respond? Look, let's see it. Verse 6, right there. Abram 
he believed the Lord. God made this promise to this unrighteous sinner, and, and Abram says, okay, yep, sounds good. I'm going to give you a son, and through him, just so many, you can't even count them. Okay. And then the text moves on, right? So God has more things to say, but it's that simple for him. He believed God's promise. What does it mean to believe something? It means that you accept it as true. Uh, Abram trusted God to do exactly what God had said that he would do. And this was after decades of trying to have children and not being able to. And this was before any children had been born to Abram. We have six kids. So if God said to me, like, I'm going to give you numberless offspring, I'd be like, I think I already have that. Like, it's already started. (laughs) Right? Like, that's easy. But Abram didn't have any. Sarah is not pregnant and will not be pregnant for a long time. And God said, this is what I'm going to do. And Abram accepted it as true. He believed God's promise. Do you ever see something or hear something so often that it just sort of slides slides by, right? You just miss it. Uh, hopefully that never happens with us and our beautiful trees and beautiful falls that we experience in our state. But sometimes things can become so common that they aren't special anymore. Uh, or we just sort of, we can just say it without thinking about it. I think that's what happens with the word faith, with the word believe. We, we use it a lot. We talk about it a lot. And that's good. That's, I'm not saying stop saying that. But it can be easy for them to slip past us without thinking about them carefully. And I don't want to, to do that. So if I told you that I had my Bible with me today, neither, I'm glad the kids are here. Uh, I can't ask my kids. So I picked on him. Can I I'll pick on you? If I told you uh, I have my Bible with me today, would it be hard for you to believe me? Why? I'm a preacher, but even more than that. Yeah, that's, uh, it's a good thing. That's, you need to keep that definition. A preacher should have a Bible. But why is it even easier for you to believe me that I have my Bible today? Why is it easier for you to believe that I have my Bible with me today? You can see it. That's right. So it would be easy to do that. It doesn't even require faith. You can see it, right? But if I told you, so that's not really faith. She can see, she can see my Bible. But if I told you I went hunting yesterday, I shot a beautiful 12-point buck, uh, you'd probably want to be like, let me see the pictures, <laughs> right? I, I didn't, right? I, uh, I, uh, two weeks ago, I grazed a doe, and she got away, and I'm still upset about that. But uh, you can believe me when I say that, or you cannot believe me. And it is a matter of faith, right? Are you going to trust in me and what I say? Do you trust me? Do you think that what I say is true, or do you doubt? Do you not trust me and think that what I say is false, right? That's a matter of faith, trust, belief. God made a promise to Abram about something that would happen. Abram could not see into the future, Um, just like you and I can't see into the future. But he trusted God to do what God said that he would do. Abram was fully convinced after this statement that God would give him a son, and through that son, he would have countless offspring. And Abram accepted that as a fact before it happened because he trusted God. That's faith. Abram believed the Lord. And what happens next is really crazy. And it's totally amazing. The rest of verse six, Abram believed the Lord. Okay, good. And he, the Lord, counted it to Abram 
as righteousness. God counted Abram's faith as righteousness. So don't miss, who's doing this? God is, right? God is counting. It's God's decision. It's, it's God's action that he takes. He's not, his arm isn't twisted. Abram is not even asking for the Lord to do this. God counts something. And what does that mean? Uh, it doesn't mean one, two, three, four, right? It means here to think of one thing as if it was something else, okay? Let me give some illustrations of this. Uh, when we were first married, Leanne and I, uh, we had very little money, uh, and we pinched every penny we could find, and then we pinched it some more, and then we, you know, tried to wring it out. Uh, the Lord was gracious and generous to us and provided for us. Every month, we would set aside $5 to buy one of, one of those pizzas from Little Caesars. They don't even cost five bucks anymore. It's now like six fifty. Uh, and it's not very good pizzas. Uh, the Barnetts had us over last night. They made good pizza, right? It's like I'd pay a lot more. If, if we had had to pay for that, I'd, we'd have to take up another offering for me. It was that good, right? But the Little Caesars pizzas, they're, it's like cardboard with sauce. It's, it's, not, it's not great. If you love Little Caesars, that's fine. There's just better pizza, better pizza in the world. But for us, we, we saved, we, we held out, and we were, like, excited about that Little Caesars pizza. It, we counted it special. You may be like, that's not a good pizza. I would agree. It's really not a very good pizza. But then it was special to us. We counted that cheap pizza as a treat. Okay? First Kings chapter 10, we read about King Solomon's reign. Remember King Solomon, right? He was wise. The Lord gave him peace. And the Lord also made him really, really what? Rich. Uh, it was said that the cups that he had in his palace were, were made of gold. And he, it's like he had a hunting cabin, and it was pure gold cups at his hunting cabin. Uh, I, we have pure glass cups that we got at Goodwill because we break them all the time. His were all gold, okay? None were even of silver. You're like, ugh, silver cups? That's sad. You only have silver cups. We have gold cups. This is what the text says. Silver was not considered or counted as anything in the days of Solomon. If I had, was wandering through uh, up Brian's pasture and, and I, I tripped over a rock and I, and I dug around a little bit and pulled out a mound of silver, do you think that would be exciting? I think Brian would be like, uh, that property deed says that's, that's my silver. And you can hand that over, thank you very much. Right? But what if I tripped on a rock and pulled up like, look. Brian, a rock. Do you think he'd be excited about that? He'd be like, you have to give me that rock back. I'm going to take it to the bank. Rocks, I'm so excited. Maybe he's a rock guy. Are you a rock guy, Brian? I don't know. But he wouldn't be excited about a rock. But would he be excited about silver? He would be excited about silver, but not in Solomon's days. They were so rich. The kingdom was so rich. It says later that, they, that he made, Solomon made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. Like, I, gotta, I need a paperweight. I'll just take a chunk of silver. Right? It's like, what makes, let me take this, this piece of silver and see if it can skip it across the pond. Let's just make that like gravel. They counted silver, which we would think of as valuable. They counted it as common. Okay? Counting, like we read about in this verse, means thinking of one thing as if it was something else. So what does God count? He counts Abram's faith. But he counts it as something that faith isn't. He counts it as righteousness. Do you see it in the text? 
He, the Lord, counted it to Abram as righteousness. And if we understand this, it should not make immediate sense to us. Here's what would make sense. Abram obeyed God, and God counted his obedience as righteousness. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because obedience is righteousness, and maybe this would be the point. Uh, well, we know our obedience is never perfect. Always falls a little bit short, even when we try our best. We never quite do everything that we want. Abram was just like us, so maybe, and it would be really nice of God to count our less than perfect obedience as perfectly righteous. That sounds good. That sounds, that sounds merciful of God, doesn't it? You, you know, you, you try your best, and I'll count your best as if it were my best. You know, there are a lot of people who live as if that's true. And there are a lot of Christians, people in churches, maybe some of you who, who use that as a guiding principle and think that is what God says. If you try your best, God will accept you because he's nice. After all, I mean, nobody's perfect. So God can't really ask of us to be perfectly righteous but he'll count whatever you try. He'll count that as righteousness. So many people live their lives and bank their eternities on that being true, but it isn't true. Try your best and God will accept it is a lie. It's a dangerous lie. It's, can I say it? It's a, it's a damning lie. God demands full, perfect righteousness. He has the right to do that because he's our creator. He's the king over everything. So he can't, it, it's okay for him to be like, this is what I demand and I have no reason to lower my standard. God does not lower his standard. Well, he must. No, he mustn't. Well, he should. No, he shouldn't. He will. No, he won't. He maintains his standard. It's right for him to do so. And he has never said that he accepts less than perfect righteousness in place of righteousness. He never says that. In fact, Jesus makes it very clear, doesn't he? Even in the Sermon on the Mount, we are familiar with a lot of those verses. What did Jesus say? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the professional righteous people, right? Unless it exceeds that, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your best is better than the people better than you, it's not good enough. And then it's just like, okay, maybe so I just need to try a little bit harder. And he gets, he gets even more pointed at the end of that. He says the actual standard is you, therefore, must be perfect. What kind of perfection? As your heavenly Father is perfect. You need a righteousness that you do not have. Abram needed a righteousness that he did not have and could not earn. A life filled with perfect obedience before a God who sees everything that you do, hears your words and your thoughts, knows your actions, right? You don't have that kind of righteousness. And you never will. You cannot achieve it on your own. Abram also didn't have that kind of righteousness. But what did Abram have? Abram had faith. Faith, but not righteousness. Then God counted Abram's faith as righteousness. So let me make a point that I want to, it's very important in this. If faith is 
righteousness, then this passage makes no sense. Faith has to be something other than righteousness in order for it to make sense that God counts faith as righteousness. Okay, Because if faith is righteousness, then God counted something as if it was that thing. Okay, it's just like attendance, whatever, I'm terrible at numbers. Let's say 40 people. I have no idea. And it's like, how many people were at Cowan First Baptist? Oh, 40 people. Well, unless I count the, the hymnals and the Bibles, and then there were 150 people there. But are hymnals and Bibles people? No. But it's just like, well, I'm going to count you as a person and you as a person. Well, well, duh, that's what they are, right? But I can't count something that isn't a person as a person. We have 22 chickens. Uh, we got chickens this summer. We have 22 of them, unless something happened last night while we were away, but hopefully that's not the case. And I have a wonderful three-year-old son I love very much. His name's James. Hi, James. <laughs> he wishes I had not drawn attention to him. Uh, we have a group of pine trees near our chicken coop. If I'm counting my chickens to make sure that I have all 22, and then James brings me a pine cone to count as a chicken, and I have 23 chickens, right? Be like, it doesn't work that way. Is a pine cone a chicken? No, it is not a chicken. In order for God to count faith as righteousness, they need to be entirely separate things, and we need to make that distinction. God, who makes the rules and judges by his rules, treats Abram as if he was righteous, not because he was righteous, but because he had faith. God decided that Abram is now righteous. Abram is justified. Abram is declared righteous by God the judge, not because he had righteousness, but because he had faith. He simply believed God and his promise, and that's what it means to be justified. For God, who evaluates your life and sees it seeping, dripping with unrighteousness, being willing to accept something else in place of a righteousness we cannot earn. And it's not just whatever you want to bring. It's faith. Faith in his promises. Unrighteous Abram was justified. He was declared righteous because God counted his faith as righteousness. God justifies sinners who believe in his promises. And like I said, this passage, this verse, this one verse, 15 verse 6, is quoted three times in the New Testament. And we're going to look at one of those. 26 minutes in, and that was my opening illustration. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Would you turn there, please? Again, I want, I want you to see it. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 so we can make these connections. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Quote, quote, Genesis 15, 6, quote, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, end quote. 
Now to the one who works, that's the one who does righteous things, the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. You work for a paycheck, you get your paycheck, your boss can't tell you it's a gift. <laughs> work uh, 40 hours at whatever, right, whatever the good hourly wage is, uh, and then he's like, hey, here's, I'm going to give you a gift. Let's say it was $10 an hour, 40 hours a week. Here's a check for $400. It's a bonus. You'd be like, thank you for the bonus. Where's my paycheck? Oh, no, no, no. The paycheck is your bonus. It's not how that works. You owe me this money because we agreed and I worked for it. You want to give me a bonus? It's got to be extra. So the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. Look at verse 5. This is incredible. And to the one who does not work, the one who has no righteousness, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, uh, and he quotes the passage from the Psalms that we read together this morning. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. We, you, me, we are unrighteous sinners. Every single one of us preacher most of all. All of us, all of you, we are unrighteous sinners. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there's no way for us to undo that, right? You ever done something wrong and then desperately wished that you could unsay what you said? It doesn't work that way. Undo what you did. It doesn't work that way. And you can't undo righteousness by starting to behave righteously. Let me, let me give another story for you. I don't remember, thankfully, a specific instance of this. I have plenty of examples of disobedience from my childhood, but I don't think this is one that happened. I can imagine as a kid playing with a, a ball in the house, knowing my parents had said, don't play with the ball in the house. Right? It's a pretty common rule. Is anyone surprised that would be a rule in, in a household? Right? Kids, are you allowed to just bounce balls all through the house all the time? No, no, nobody does that, right? Okay, let's say that I did that, knowing that I was not supposed to do that, and then what happens? I break a window. Do you know that sick feeling in your stomach when you've done something wrong and you can't escape it? And then I go into desperation mode. I clean up the broken glass. Then I sweep the whole house. Then I wash all the dishes, I clean my room, I sort and wash and fold and put away all of the laundry, I finish my homework, I cook dinner, I mow the lawn, and I sit there, you know, dressed up in a tie at the counter, smiling at my parents when I walk in. In other words, I do everything that my parents could ever ask me to do. Uh, if they survived the shock when they walked in, uh, they would be really happy, right? Look at all these things that you did. And then eventually, what would they see? The broken window. And they'd be like, Peter, what happened to the window? And all of those other things that I did cannot replace the fact that I broke the rule and broke the window. 
I would be an unrighteous, disobedient son standing in a clean house. But my unrighteousness would be an inescapable fact. No amount of good that we do before God is really not that good anyway. No good that we try to do before God ever makes up for the fact that we're disobedient children in his house. We've broken his rules. We've damaged his creatures and creation, right? We have sinned against a God who knows everything. And we're never more eager to obey than when we're desperate to escape the consequences of our disobedience. But we cannot escape or erase or avoid the fact of our sin. We are unrighteous sinners. And we read this morning by works of the law or any law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. But God has also spoken a promise to us. Abram was an unrighteous sinner, and God spoke a promise to him. We are unrighteous sinners. God has spoken a promise to us, a promise that we call the gospel, a gospel that Paul in Romans says there is a righteousness of God or from God that meets God's standard that is revealed in the gospel through faith. The gospel, good news about Jesus, God himself born as a human like us. Throughout his whole life, he lived righteously. He never sinned, not even once. Then he was crucified, nailed to the cross, and on the cross, God punished Jesus for sin, but not for his sin. He had no sin, but he was made sin for us. Jesus was punished for our sin, our unrighteousness. Jesus took the full punishment that we deserve all the way to dying, the death that we deserved to die, that I deserve to die, that you deserve to die because of your sin and disobedience. And then after three days of being dead in the grave, God raised Jesus to a new and glorified and eternal life. And through Jesus, God promises that forgiveness of sin is available. Not only forgiveness of sin, escape from punishment, deliverance from God's wrath. Not only that, peace with God. Not only that, right? Adoption into his family, eternal life with him. The complete opposite. Instead of punishing us as enemies, seating us as his table, at his table as his children. A life with the one who made us. In his word, God has given, that's available for sinners, And that's a promise that God has made in his word, a promise of salvation in its fullest picture. A clear promise. A huge promise. And a promise that seems utterly impossible. Kind of like a 90-year-old man being promised a son after a lifetime of barrenness. So similar to what God did to Abram. Abram heard God and said, okay, you say that, okay, then it's true. And it really is. With a variety of promises, we see God's plan of redemption. God's people always respond to whatever his promises are. God's people respond to God's promises with a faith that says, okay, that's what you say. I accept that as true. Simply off your word. It's all we need. I accept what you say is true, God whether it's I'm going to give you a son or I'm going to give you my son. 
for your salvation. We must believe God's promise just with that simplicity of Abraham. That's what faith is. God says, this is what I'm going to do. And Abram says, okay. And then God tells us, this is what I have done in Jesus. And we say, okay. Do you accept it as true? Are you listening, right? Say a lot. I say it fast. I know it's familiar. Don't let the familiar become mundane. Don't let it be despised. Listen, do you accept it as true that Jesus is the Son of God who lived a perfect life, died as a sacrifice for your sins, and rose again from the dead? Do you trust God's word when it says that forgiveness and eternal life with him is available to you only because of Jesus? If you do, then it can be said of you like it was said of Abraham, she believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to her as righteousness. He believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him, to Tony, as righteousness. It's that simple. Boy, we can complicate the gospel, but this is just the root of it. We cannot move past without understanding this. And don't just take my word for it. This isn't just a story about Abraham. Are you still in Romans chapter 4? Flip to the other, it's the other column of the page for me. Maybe you have to flip a page for you. Verse 23, Romans 4, 23. He's still talking about Abraham. He's still talking about his faith. And he says this, but... The words, quote, it was counted to him, end quote, were not written for Abram's sake only, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised the dead, from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Abram didn't get some exception. Abram lived spiritually according to the rule. And what is the rule? God counts faith as righteousness. For Abram and for me and for you, you either have perfect righteousness, which you don't have and can't earn, or you come to him with faith in his son, and he counts that as righteousness. You need righteousness, but don't have any. And you can't get any merely by trying to obey. But praise God, he counts faith as righteousness. And many reject this. Many reject it. Many are ignorant of it, but many just reject it outright. The Roman Catholic Church rejects this formally as their teaching. They say, no, no, no. You have to be righteous in order for God to count you as righteous. Very contrary to what this text says. We're talking about this justification by faith alone. Exclusive faith, not faith sprinkled with righteousness, faith apart from righteousness. And they would say, no, 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 that's legal fiction. God can't do that. And he doesn't do that. And I say, the Bible says he does do that. If God only counts us as righteous, if we are righteous, that is really bad news. Because again, I can't say it clearly enough. You aren't righteous. And here's the thing. You know you're not righteous. Anybody really honestly going to say at the end of the day, you're like, you know what? I have done everything that I wanted to do. Let's not even bring God's law into that. Do you live up to what you think you should do? You don't. 
We fall short of our own standard, and God's standard is much higher. And we may try to make excuses, and we may try to compare, and we know when we lay our head down on our pillows, it's like, ah, today wasn't a good day. I didn't, I didn't do all the things that I should do. For me, it's like, ah, was I a faithful enough pastor? No. Good enough husband? No. Good enough dad? No. Good enough neighbor? No. Son? Uh, friend? Whatever. It's like, no. Just human being? No. I don't have a righteousness that I can bring before God. I'm not willing to, to stand at that court date and make excuse for myself because I know, like, I'm just like, this is a farce. I've got nothing. When have you ever been satisfied with your efforts to do what is right and try to please God? And you're, you're church people. <laughs> Instead, aren't you always left with questions like, did I do it right? Or did I do enough? Just be clear. The answers, those are good questions, but I, I know the answers for them. Did you do it right? No. Have you done enough? No. You cannot earn righteousness on your own through obedience to any set of rules. And sadly, it's not only the Roman Catholics who reject this. How easy it is it to be like, oh, those Catholics, <laughs> those Mormons, those, those unbelievers, right? It's like, we need the gospel sitting right here. <laughs> the, the pew folk need the reminders of these type of things. We are guilty before God. And we are tempted in the same way to try to make faith something that it's not, to prop ourselves up with our own set of righteousness. But instead of replacing faith with works, that's kind of what the Roman Catholics, many do, right? It's like, oh, this obedience, right, that is righteousness. It's like, falls short of God's standard, doesn't work. But we often are tempted to say that faith is righteousness. So then we start to trust in faith. We start to view faith and speak of faith as something that we do. And we ask questions about it. And many times, redefining faith as a work, we start to think of what faith does, like how faith is expressed, as if it were faith itself. I love my wife. But if I was like, oh, I love my wife. Well, how much time do you spend with her? None. Oh, well, what does she look like? Man, I don't even remember. Okay, do you, do you uh, buy her any gifts? No. Tell her you love her? No. Give her a kiss? <laughs> no. Hug? Affection? Any, anything? Right. No. No, I live in a totally separate house. Spend all my time doing other stuff. I can't even remember the last time I saw her. Would you be like, oh, he loves his wife? <laughs> no, because that's not what love does. Right? But are the expressions of love the same thing as love? Right? We, we live in the same house. Uh, but there are many people who don't have that covenant love who live in the same house. Right? So, so an expression of love isn't love itself. You see what I'm saying? And there are expressions of faith, but expressions of faith can be done without faith. The expressions aren't faith themselves. And if we start to trust in expressions of faith, expressions of love for God, we start to rely on those things we're not actually loving or trusting God anymore. Uh, should the people of God sing praise to God? Yeah, if we love God with all of our heart, that's going to pour forth into music. But can you sing a song of praise to God without loving God? Yes. Right? What does prayer do? Would, 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 uh, excuse me. What does faith do? Does faith pray? Yes. Uh, but is all prayer offered in faith? No. So Faith will pray, but praying isn't faith. 
Is that, is that clear? Right? So I'm not saying don't pray, but I am saying if you think, oh, I trust because I pray, that's not the same thing. You should pray because you trust, but you've got to have the, uh, let's see, would be the, the horse uh, before the cart at that point, right? We're really good at trying to mess things up. We're really good at trying to mix things up. We're really desperate. You're probably as desperate as I am to have some kind of righteousness of my own to cling to so God will like me, even though that's not what the gospel says. And we do that with prayer a lot. And then we mix up this idea of justification. So as we think about, well, if faith is prayer, then we start asking these questions. Was I at the right place when I prayed? Like as if it was justification by geography. Oh, if I was there at the pew, that's not, then I can't be saved. But if I was here on the steps, then I can be saved. Are we justified by where we are? No. Was I in the right position? If you were standing, that's not good enough. If you were kneeling, that was better. As if it were justified by an expression of humility? Are we justified by humility? We are not. Did I say the right words? Have you asked that before? Did I say the right things? Oh, man, how many times have I tried to say it again and again? As if, it's, as if trusting in Christ is like some kind of a magic spell. Right? You just say the right words. So is that justification by quotation? It's not what we're justified by. Did I mean it enough? Oh. Have you tortured yourself and your soul lying in bed over the course of your life wondering if you meant it enough? as if we're justified by sincerity. We're not justified by sincerity. We're justified by faith in Jesus. Did I feel bad enough about my sin? Justification by remorse? Not true. Did I cry enough? Justification by emotion? Now, all of those things could end up being expressions of faith, but they aren't faith itself. I submit each of those things so often become an effort to trust in yourself and to trust in your faith rather than trusting in Jesus. You are not saved by the quality of your faith, how good it is, and you're not saved by the quantity of your faith, how much you have, and you're not saved by the expression of your faith, whether it's prayers or tears or life changed. You are only saved by the object of your faith. Do you trust God? to keep his promises. That's it. And if you're trusting in anything else, you're lost. Because it is only faith in God that he counts as righteousness. If you trust him, though, he counts your faith as righteousness. It's that simple and true and somehow unbelievable, but yet believe it too, because it's what God says. Be free of trusting yourself. Be free of trusting your faith. Be free of trusting your prayers and just trust Jesus. Stop looking to yourself and look to Jesus instead. And that's not a first time thing. I know this is the heartbeat that Brian has because I've heard him say it and teach it and sing it and preach it to me. 
over the years that we've known each other, right? The gospel is not just for an unbeliever. The gospel is for all of us. So the first time that you are looking again to Jesus when you're struck with the fact of your unrighteousness or the 10,000th time that you're reminded of your unrighteousness and you look to Jesus again, that's not getting saved over and over again. That's the just who live by their faith. Every day we should be struck with the fact of our unrighteousness and reminded of the fact that there's nothing that we can do about it and reminded of the glorious truth that Jesus already did it. And then you're just kind of like, that was it. That's what I need. He did it. I'm justified. That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. The gospel that we need on a daily basis. The gospel that I know is preached to you from this pulpit, and I hope that you rejoice in it, but it's the gospel that we just hear so often we think maybe it's just for somebody else, that it's not. It is for you, and it is for me. Every time you are confronted with the inescapable reality of your unrighteousness, you need to hear God's promise in the gospel. You need to believe that his word is true, and you need to rest in the certainty that God counts faith as righteousness. It's always been that way from the beginning. And now and forevermore, we will rest in the truth that God justifies sinners who believe in his promises.